Today's sermon comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. And it is entitled, Let Me Go First and Bury My Father. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will go follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You may be seated. Prior to joining the United States Air Force, applicants must sign a form entitled, USAF Statement of Understanding for Dependent Care Responsibility. Within the form, there is a paragraph which states the following, and I quote, I also understand arrangements for care of my dependents is my personal responsibility and will not interfere with my Air Force duties, including shift work, weekend duty, temporary duty away from my assigned duty station, and short-notice deployments and evacuations. I further understand my dependence will not prevent me from being available for worldwide assignment and failure to perform my military duties due to my dependence may result in disciplinary action to include involuntary discharge." End quote. Well, that statement is the reason why nearly half a million active duty Air National Guard and Air Force Reservists spend so many months at a time away from their wives and children in faraway lands. To be honest, when I initially read that statement, it sounded quite harsh. Who in the world would want to sign up for a job like that? Every, now, every job that I know of show great sympathy and allow for employees to take care of loved ones, especially if it is the medical emergency of a child or dependent. But then I realized I was thinking like a civilian. The Air Force wants you to know what you're signing up for before you sign up for it. And why does the Air Force have such harsh standards? The reason why the military has such draconian standards is because of the mission that they're embarked upon. The lives of thousands, if not millions of people depend upon the successful completion of an Air Force mission. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or any other terrorist group will not wait for airmen to come back home from a visit with their kids. They will strike and they will not wait. Again, the air, your mission of the Air Force is the driving force behind the standards that they have in place for all personnel in uniform. The standards are even higher for officers of the Air Force who have a commission from the President of the United States. There is an expectation to fulfill the mission no matter what the cost. Uh, now, all of us today as Christians have a commission from the King of the Universe. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ gave us the Great Commission, and it remains in full force until He returns. The Great Commission is found in the 28th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and it goes like this. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sadly, current statistics show that many professing Christians are living life without any regard for the Master's commission. In fact, many will die without ever having led a single soul to Christ. Well, what about you? Will that be your legacy as well? Will you die without having led anyone to Christ? Again, that's a very real possibility. Sure, conversion is God's job. But one thing I know, the more you fish, the more you'll be likely to catch fish. Are you fishing? Are you evangelizing and doing good works? Are you about your father's business? In short, this morning, I guess what I'm asking is, are you a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ? In a prior sermon, I stated that all the centurions mentioned in the New Testament are spoken of in a favorable light. Centurions were officers in the Roman army who were roughly equivalent in today's rank to a captain in the U.S. Army or Air Force or Marine Corps. From the centurion who asked Jesus to merely speak the word for his servant's healing, to the centurion Cornelius in the book of Acts, all the centurions in the Bible are spoken of in a favorable light. Even prior to his conversion, Cornelius is noted as being a good man. Acts 10.2 states that he was a devout and God-fearing man. Now those traits will not save you, and that is why Peter had to go and preach the gospel to centurion, merely a good man, being a good man does not save you from the fires of hell. But there is something about the character of such men that are very in line with the character demanded of followers of Jesus Christ. The Roman historian Polybius wrote the following list of qualifications for centurions. Number one, they must have an ability to command. Second, they did not intentionally seek danger. Third, they were steady in action. Fourth, they were reliable. Fifth, they are capable of standing one's ground. And sixth, they are prepared to die at their posts. In fact, there is so much within military life that is in line with Christian life that the Apostle Paul calls his disciple Timothy a soldier of Jesus Christ. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2-4. to four. Paul tells Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, and the word there in Greek is men, who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardships with me, Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Do you see what Paul did in that text? First, he identified the mission to Timothy. What was it? 
What you've heard from me, teach other faithful men who will also teach others. Disciples making disciples who will make disciples. That's the purpose of your life, by the way. That's the commission. That's your job. That's the mission. So he first clearly delineates the mission. And then he says, and then he encourages him to complete the mission by exhorting him to its, with, first to withstand hardships and second to not get entangled with silly earthly pursuits what he calls civilian pursuits what is a civilian pursuit in Christian terms it is earthly pursuit Timothy stay on the focus stay focused on the mission and complete it because at the end of the day we must all please our commanding officer our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's the mission. Here's how you complete the mission by staying focused and not getting entangled in the things of this world and preparing your mind for suffering so that you may please your commanding officer, Jesus Christ. You want to get the medal of honor from Him. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we're all living for. Now, if you thought that the opening statement that I shared with you from the United States Air Force was tough, it, it was tough because before, before anyone signs off on it, they read that and they go, whoa, am I really called to do this? Am I, willi- re- am I truly willing to do it? If you thought that statement was tough, wait till you read and comprehend today's statements by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes some very difficult statements today. And if you thought following Jesus was easy, you were fooled. Let's study today's text. Because after reading today's text, the question you must ask yourself is, is the commander worthy and is the mission worthy? Before signing up to becoming, to becoming a Christian, you must ask yourself those questions. Are you ready for the hardships? Are you willing to deploy for Christ? Will you follow all for Jesus? Now in today's text, two would-be followers of Christ show up and display some desire to enlist in the Lord's army. Now Luke's account of the same story gives us one more man. He says that three people came. But that doesn't matter. Luke, Matthew focuses on two. And so for today's sermon, we will focus on the two that came. The first man was a scribe, and in those days, scribes were experts in handling written documents. They didn't do too much uh, hands-on work. They didn't, in other words, they weren't blue-collar workers. They were more white-collar workers. They had tremendous intelligence, but because of their duties, they weren't out suffering the heat and the hardships of blue-collar laborers. They were not manual laborers. Their duties included teaching, interpretation, regulation of the law. Now one thing we must fight against is looking down upon and despising the educated because of this. As we were talking about earlier before even this sermon began, uh, even within the military, NCOs and enlisted people behind the backs of their officers will look down upon their officers because they do most of the work, whereas the officers give the commands and don't lift the finger. 
The same is true in our in, uh, in our workforce today. A lot of times there is an animosity against white collar workers from blue collar workers. There is an animosity sometimes even within Christian circles. And I would say there is an active animosity against educated Christians, even against those with a seminary education. You go into certain fundamentalist circles, they actually have an active animosity against those who have a seminary education. Yet Jesus himself did not despise the educated. Jesus was so smart that by the age of 12, he was conversing with temple scholars about the law. Yes, it is true that the gospel is for all people, and the gospel is so simple that a child could understand it. And yes, I do admit that Jesus picked tax collectors and fishermen to be his apostles. But he also picked Paul, a super-educated former Pharisee, who wrote the majority of the books of our New Testament. We wouldn't have our doctrinal books if it wasn't for Paul and his education. In fact, if it wasn't for Paul, none of us Gentiles would be sitting here today as Christians. Think about that. Jesus himself declared that a converted scribe was of great value to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew thirteen fifty-two. Here's what it says. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Yes, indeed, trade scribes are of great value to the cause of Christ. He brings out treasure from both the Old and New Testaments and edifies the body of Christ. Now, I don't know if the scribe in verse 19 ended up becoming a follower of Christ but he does come to Christ with an interest in following him, and it does seem to be an enthusiastic, authentic interest. I will follow you wherever you go, he says in verse 19. And then Jesus turns around and essentially says, Oh yeah, before you sign up, let me, know what you're, let me tell you what you're signing up for. A servant will be like his master, and if I'm treated this way, let me tell you how you will be treated. I don't have a permanent home. Birds at least have nests. Foxes have holes. But me, I don't have a permanent home. Are you sure you want to follow me? Now some have taken this statement to say that Jesus was homeless. This does not mean that Jesus was homeless. He had places to stay. People opened up their home to him. This, instead, was a statement warning the scribe of the high cost of discipleship. This was a statement warning of the deprivation and comfortlessness that comes with enlisting in the Lord's army. A scribe may not have been accustomed to the rigors, disrespect, and difficulties of being a Christ follower. Jesus was giving this man the plain facts of what it would mean to follow Jesus wherever he would go. Now, if you go down to verse 20, you will see the term Son of Man. And a lot of people are very confused by this term. It is Jesus' favorite self-designation. In the book of Ezekiel, the term often appears, but it is used in that book to differentiate a mere mortal from God. So Jesus is not using it in the Ezekiel way. 
if you read through the book of Ezekiel, he would often call himself or be identified as the Son of Man. But that's not the way Jesus is using it. Instead, Jesus is using it in the Daniel 7.13 manner. It is referring to the humble, human, yet simultaneously divine Messiah who will be given an everlasting kingdom and dominion over all the nations of the earth. Keep in mind, whenever you read this term being used in the New Testament, that it is referring to the Messiah. Here's what Daniel 7, 13-14 says. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came upon the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is not talking about a mere mortal. This is talking about the Messiah, an everlasting dominion. No human has an everlasting dominion. Now after the scribe, a disciple is instructed on the high cost of following Jesus. The word disciple simply means pupil. And it does not in this case refer to the twelve apostles. So don't think that James or John was the one asking um, this or, or, or was the one making this statement. In, this, in, in a statement that actually sounds harsher than anything we've read from the military, Jesus does not permit a man to go, go bury his own father. The Gospel writer Luke records it this way. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus doesn't want us burying our parents? If you look closely, the Matthew account does not have Jesus first saying, follow me to the disciple. But Luke does. But the accounts do not contradict. Because the man's request, let me first go, sufficiently demonstrates that the man already knew that Christ had issued a call on his life. Do you see that? In other words, he wouldn't say, let me go first, if Jesus hadn't first said, follow me. So the two accounts don't contradict here. Luke just gives you more. Evidently, this was a man that Jesus had commanded to follow him. The man now had only one of two choices. He could either refuse with an excuse or he can accept. There was no middle ground. And today the same is true for you. In a moment, I'm about to preach the gospel to you. Upon hearing the gospel, you have only one of two choices. You can either refuse salvation, or you can accept God's free gift of salvation. There is no middle ground. Listen carefully to the gospel. Here's the gospel. Number one, God is holy, righteous, and just. He loves you, but He must send all sinners to hell. Number two, we're all sinners who deserve hell from God. We deserve eternal punishment in the flames of hell for our sins. 
Number three, but God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, who was fully God and fully man. Jesus lived a sinless life, and Jesus, as the only begotten Son of God, died on the cross for your sins. Three days later, He historically resurrected from the grave. Number four, if you repent of your life of sin, if you turn from living the way you lived before, and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. Today, if you believe, you will have God's free gift of salvation. Today, if you don't believe, you will not receive eternal life. The Bible never records what, that's, uh, what the disciple decided to do. I hope he decided to follow Christ, despite the te high temporary cost of following Him. At this point, let me clarify a few things. First, let me say that the man could have been asking one of two possible requests. Either the man's father was already dead, and he wanted to give him a proper burial, or the, man, the man's father was dying, and he wanted to go take care of him, watch him die, and bury him when he died. Do you understand the difference? When the man asked Jesus, can I go bury my father? Either the man's father was already dead and he just wanted to go and bury him. Or the man was dying and he wanted permission to go care for him until he died, bury him, and then return to follow Jesus. One of the two. Most scholars believe that it was the latter. Okay? Which then would have been an indefinite amount of time. Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus could have asked, Okay, when are you coming back? And the response would have been, I don't know, whenever my father dies. It would have been an indefinite amount of time. Who knows when a dying man will die? It could be 20 days, or he could continue living sick for 20 more years. Happens all the time. Right? Many scholars, as I've said, believe that it was the latter. I do as well. Which is why Jesus' response was so severe. I was recently told of a naval officer who, after 25 years of service, retired. He called it a transition. Because he's still 45, he's young. And is now seeking to transition into what he believes is God's call upon his life to be a missionary. God, he believes that God has called him to be a missionary. The man is now in his mid-40s, as I stated. Yet he told my wife that he wants to first go to California to take care of his elderly mother until her death. My response upon hearing the story was quite straightforward. I said, my goodness, the man might never go to missions. For who knows when a person will die? No one does. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to go take care of your elderly mother or father. And I'm not saying it's bad to go bury them. But listen to what I'm just simply stating. No one knows when a dying man will die. Second, and I want you to listen to me very clearly. I want to make clear that Jesus is not giving us a general rule in verse 22. Okay? So if anyone comes up to you and says, Uh-oh, you're sinning because you're burying your father. Jesus said to this man not to. 
I want you to respond by stating that that verse, verse 22, is not a general rule. There are ways we read the Bible errantly, and that is an error. If we read it that way, it is an error. The general rule is the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor and obey your father and your mother. That's the general rule. Which means that if your parents die, you bury them, you honor them, you care for them. So that's the general rule. Verse 22 is an exception. Generally, we are to take care of our parents or grandparents. Generally, we are to honor them with a proper burial. And later, in Matthew 15, 16, Jesus would clearly teach us that we are to obey our parents and fulfill the fifth commandment. What is verse 22 then? Verse 22 is very much like the rich young ruler. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler who said the same thing? He said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? What was his prescription to that man? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Now here's the thing. Does Jesus want Christians everywhere in all time to sell everything that they have and live without any possessions? No. But Jesus knew exactly what was the idol, the foothold in that rich young ruler. And so that was his prescription specifically to that young man. Will there be other people in history who will also need the same prescription? Absolutely. Because materialism is rampant in this country. But does it mean that Christians must sell, does it mean that every Christian must sell everything and live without any positions? No. Does not mean that. So in this case, it's similar. Jesus knew that the man's heart was wavering and that his going to bury his father might result in him never returning to fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus is, is God. He knows. He looks him straight in the eye and, and he's like, I know what's going on in your heart. I know if I let you go take care of your dying father, you're never coming back. You're using this as an excuse to not follow me right now. So that's why his response was so severe. Finally, third. I wish to make the point that the principles found in both stories are, however, universally applicable. Why am I saying that as my third point? Because after you heard my second point, there's a temptation inside of your heart, I know, to say, oh, okay, it's not a general rule, it doesn't really apply to me. And all of a sudden, Jesus' harsh words are watered down. And I don't want to do that today. I want to say with absolute force and clarity that the standards and the principles are applicable for all Christians. Now, what do I mean by that? No duty, no matter how good the duty is, in and of itself is, rises above one's duty to God. In fact, that's today's central theological principle for my sermon. Place your duty to God above any other duty. Even your duty to your parents. 
Is that a good duty? Absolutely. The Bible says to honor your father and your mother. But there's a higher duty. Did you know that? It is the duty to God. So when the duty to parents conflict with your duty to God, you are to place your duty to God above your duty to your parents. Or any other duty for that matter. All duties are penultimate duties when compared to one's duty to God. Fulfill your mission. If the United States Air Force expects their airmen to complete the mission, they don't want to hear it. You could come and say, oh, my son was having a fever. No. The statement says you will be discharged if you come in with that kind of excuse and the mission is not completed. How much higher are Jesus' standards? We watered this down. We come up with all sorts of excuses to not do the kingdom of God, the work for the kingdom of God. Now, different temptations try different men differently. A perfectly good duty might be a severe temptation, an obstacle for some. For some of you, burying your father may not be an issue because you'll come back and you'll worship and serve God faithfully afterwards. But for this man, it was a severe temptation. But you have other temptations, I can guarantee you that, that you will rationalize and say, well, it's a good thing. And it might be a good thing. Like, for example, going and getting a higher education degree might actually be a temptation for some of you, whereas objectively, it's actually a good thing. So different temptations tempt different people differently. To the scholar, Jesus warns him about the hardships of following Christ. Today, is Christ worthy of the sufferings you will receive because you'll be one of His followers? Following Jesus will not be easy. If your life is too easy right now, chances are you're probably not following Christ. To the disciple, Jesus commands him not to even bury his father. Today is the Great Commission above any other duty in your life, even your duty to your closest relatives. Is God above all? Let me close today with an exposition of verse 22. Luke records the verse, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you're a careful reader, you're asking yourself the question, what does the phrase, the dead bury the dead, mean? What does that mean? If you're already dead, how can you bury someone who's already dead? Ever thought about that? What does that mean? It means this. Jesus is informing the disciple that the spiritually dead, in other words, unbelievers, will take care of the things of the world, like burial rituals. Burying one's father, while it is a good act that everyone should do, is nevertheless an act that even unbelievers do. It is a natural activity that is common to all mankind. Everybody buries their dead. Jesus is essentially saying to the man, Listen, I've called you to preach the gospel, so don't get entangled with the affairs of this world. While this is normally an activity that I'm okay with my followers doing, for you it will be a stumbling block. Hence, let the unbelievers, the spiritually dead, take care of burying your dead father, the dead bury the dead. Let them get entangled with the things of this world. You, on the other hand, stay focused on completing the mission. You go and preach 
the gospel. That's how high of a priority gospel preaching is. Or, I could simply quote the Apostle Paul again. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Followers of Christ, will you indeed follow Christ wherever He goes? Then stay focused and complete the mission. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity to hear your word preached today. 